City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, well, well, let's open with that. The click of the cups, there they are. Yes, we did that. Yes. <laughs> so we're running a little late this morning. Zeb Peek over there saying yes. I'm Kevin Healy. So that was a yes to running late as well, I would think. I wasn't uh, running late no, this you morning. you weren't. You weren't. Uh, in fact, it's, it's just turned in. It's just gone from running late to even a bigger disaster, I think. But never mind. We'll get through this A's show. Um, we're going to, it's Energy Day, and we're going to be talking in the last half of the program to David Spratt, um, well-known, I think, to many people as a... a, a great campaigner on climate change and environment issues who wrote years ago that book Code Red, which or co-wrote, uh, which warned then about the need to take urgent action and uh, all these years later, and we talked to him just before the Glasgow conference in late last year, November, um, and we're going to catch up with what's happened since and of course with what's happening in the election on these things, which that part should be pretty short, I would think. Yeah. Uh, but well, the reason we're late, I'm late actually was that I... I got um, I got a bit down the road from my luckily not too far from home, and suddenly thought, God, I didn't pick up David's phone number, which we need to uh, to be able to interview him. So uh, <laughs> so I had to dash back and get it. But in the course of that, I've realised when I got here, in a mad rush to get out the door anyway, that I've left all the things I I had put aside for today's program at home. So I've got nothing in front of me, whatever. So yeah, there you no, are. Zeb. No news. No news. <laughs> Except, well, one thing, the, the usual news source, the Herald Sun this week, came up with um, a, a full page signed by a couple of their senior executives about how, how they love the people of Victoria. They want us to make our own decision and they're going to help us. So that should be a boon to all of us in this uh, Yep, yeah, I, <laughs> I guess so, I guess so. The, the worst part about the election, I would have thought, is we're only up to day three today and there's about 40 days or something to go. Yeah. It's going to get worse. Do you want a cup of tea, Zip? Yes, I would love a cup of tea. Oh. Of course, people don't have that long to enrol to vote. So anyone that is young listening that uh, has not yet enrolled or, like, if you've moved house or anything, do remember to... Check your details. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, Karina's around the place. She might come in and want a cup of tea shortly. We'll leave it there. Uh, yeah, so that was that. But a couple of things I know I did want to talk about today. Uh, one was that the, the Prime Minister, with his usual honesty, last week, Jim Chalmers, the, uh, the Labor shadow treasurer. Hang on, let's have a sip of tea here. Ah, after all that rushing, I need that. Um, <laughs> Jim Chalmers, the shadow treasurer, said Labor would not pass; it would not um, t- increase any taxes, and uh, he, he also said they would abandon any plan to tax family trusts, which means that those people who use family trusts, believe it or not, I know it's ludicrous to think <laughs> of it, but to avoid paying tax, won't be still will still continue to not pay tax or not to pay tax, to be correct. Um, so that's wonderful. But having said. He wouldn't raise taxes as they so often do before elections. Then it limits what you can do, mm-hmm. um, particularly seeing they've already promised um, to increase defence spending on trained killers and the merchants of death. And I notice now they've said they will not increase the uh, the dole; they won't increase 
job seeker allowance, which, you know, as we know, is pitiful. Um, so you absolutely limit what you can do. But having said they won't raise taxes, the next day Morrison came out and said this shows that Labor, that under Labor taxes will be let rip. What? Taxes will be let rip. Now, imagine how let rip they'd be if he'd said he would raise them. Yeah. Oh, I think Morrison just had his line prepared. Maybe he was, maybe he was anticipating that Labor would say that they would raise taxes, and then he was just like, "Oh, I'll just say it anyway." <laughs> well, <laughs> may, maybe, but anyway. Also, of course, the same week he came out with "Let It Rip," attacking the state government here, saying that they have to stop, well, they have to let rip um, coronavirus. That we have to lift masks wherever people now have to wear them, which is pretty limited anyway. Uh, we have to lift distancing. We have to uh, lift isolation um, when you're, um, you know, if you're in contact with someone. Uh, and obviously, he feels not enough people are dying, not enough people are catching it, not enough hospitals are having treat, having patients. So, on behalf of the business community, he says Labor in Victoria is not letting it rip enough. Oh dear. So That's Labor's taxing is letting it rip, and Labor's not letting it rip in Victoria. Yep. Yep. Got it. You got it. When you mentioned the defence spending, oh, it just like doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, if we end up not spending money on anything else in Australia, then like what's the point of even having a military to like defend Australia because we'll just like have nothing to defend. But obviously, you know, ah, I don't know. It just makes me so frustrated. And I actually saw there was an article that came out a while ago um, in declassifiedoz.org uh, about reputation laundering. Um, and it's talking about Lockheed Martin and BAE Systems and how they are both sort of like infiltrating um, Australia's education systems and like so Lockheed Martin, for instance, is a major sponsor sponsor of the National Youth Science Forum. And this article sort of points out the hypocrisy of that. A Lockheed Martin missile blows up a school bus in Yemen, while in Australia the company gains kudos for sponsoring a youth science forum. Um, and it's just... Ah! <laughs> well, also, uh, with the youth science bit, they could learn how to make the bombs as well. And, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the other part of it. They're, you know, getting in early to recruit their new employees to make the new <laughs> fantastic weapons of tomorrow. Um, and they've definitely... Um, weapons companies have been, like, working alongside in, in various ways, collaborating with universities... Um, mm. For a, a long time, increasingly there's yeah, yeah. there's there's merchants of death involved in university funding. And, yeah, and, which yeah. is just it's just bonkers to me. Like when I was doing my masters and doing the research part of it, you have to spend ages and ages doing this like incredibly long and detailed um, like report of how you're going to make sure that your research is ethical and like maintains all of these standards. And so I don't understand how you could ever, like, manage to put through any sort of research project uh, linked with the military and be able to pass ethical standards on that when obviously your research is going to be helping kill people. Well, from government's point of view, they're ethical companies, of course. They just 
their ethics is to kill people, presumably. Yeah, and they use phrases such as solving complicated problems and uh, preserving international safety and things to sort of hide yes. the fact that they're the, actually The great doing union the leader, Jack Mundy, you always talked about workers should have a right to um, only work in... Um, in, in, in areas that will not work in areas where, you know, destruction. They shouldn't, you know, the, the car industry should be converted to making public transport, for instance. Uh, um, you know, you just don't make weapons at all, of course, and all that. So, um, so he used to call it socially useful work, and mm. if it wasn't socially useful, don't do it. Yeah. Um, in times of unemployment, that's harder to maintain, but um, nonetheless. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to say something now, what, what you just said, something very silly indeed. Yeah. I'm going to say, rather than all these countries around the world spending more and more and more on the merchants of death on the basis that this will protect them against and keep peace, which is rubbish. I mean, you, war is peace, so to speak. Why doesn't the United Nations get some, pass a resolution that every single country totally abandon its military altogether and no one have anyone who can attack another country? Sounds like a brilliant idea. But... Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? And, Maybe and, it's possible. Maybe in, it would be. And in the process, destroy all those weapons, including all those nuclear ones, which um, we've talked to David's, um, to, um, um, not David Spratt, um, we've talked to... David um, Sweeney. David Sweeney about. Um, it, it's not as easy as it sounds in terms of what you do with the, the waste and everything else from it, but at least you get rid of the danger from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of danger, another thing I was going to talk about, um, so see another sip of tea. Hang on, tea. Mm, delightful. <laughs> um, another thing I wanted to talk about: we've we've had um, the government loading up state authorities right before the election. Michaela Cash, in particular, as Attorney General, loading up uh, courts and loading up the the um, the uh, t- the tribunal, the whatever it's called, tribunal where they hear hear um, cases against government etc um and a lot of the people she's appointed they're all been a they've all been liberal party apparatchiks in some form or other or big business acquaintances most of them haven't got a got a law degree yet they've got to write reports based on law um and we're seeing it all over the place um we saw in the last week keith pitt the minister for resources um appointing a, a new bloke who comes from the petroleum and resource industry to head the murray valley or murray river authority um which is you know ridiculous uh so they're putting all these people in positions which have seven year terms and the um, you know so they're not minor um, with massive salaries, three, four, five hundred thousand uh, dollars, right before the election. So they've stacked everything right before the election, which is mm. pretty dreadful. Mm. And allied to that, I think it's important. We're now seeing this issue about the woman in the case with the education minister Tudge being paid some massive payout. Um, quite probably, quite properly for sexual harassment and being treated very badly by him after they were having an affair. But we are paying it. Now, I would have thought, well, they say she was an employee and he was... The relationship was to do with the two of them as individuals, as I see it. He might have been minister and she might have been in the bureaucracy somewhere. But in terms of the affair... I'm sure he wasn't saying, we're going to have an affair because I'm the minister, we're going to have an affair because I'm a randy male, he probably was saying. Um, 
So why should the public purse pick up the costs of that for his indiscretions and his parent, you know, his alleged violence to order, for which they're paying out? Yeah, uh, I, I don't really understand. I don't no. understand why he wouldn't personally be paying mm. that. Ditto with the High Court judge, who I'm sure wasn't acting as a High Court judge when he arrested, um, allegedly arrested, but I think you know it's been shown there was an inquiry and said he did, and they've paid the women out there, but again from the public purse. Now... Um, if, in fact, there was harassment of, of a criminal sort, then why also is he not being charged anyway? And that it may not be. You know, I don't know what happened there, but there's, you know, what, we'd like to know why there were no charges later, I would think. Um, but again, this is all using the public purse for these people's indiscretions, when I think they themselves ought to meet the costs. That's my thought. Yeah. Yeah, not much to say in reply to that, but I, I think I agree. <laughs> um, speaking of politics and elections and whatnot, there's also the election going on in France at the moment. Don't know whether yeah, I'm going to top up my tea in been... the background here, so people can hear. Do you want to top up your tea? No, I'm no, I'm right. good. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know whether you've been keeping up with the election in France, but they've done the first round of the presidential elections, mm. and they've had the interesting mm. result of. Macron in the lead, but only by like four percent of the vote or something. Then Marine Le Pen, who's the extreme right um, candidate, and then after her, and not very far behind her either, is Jean Luc Mélenchon, who's the the left, the left candidate. Yeah, he got twenty-seven or something, didn't he, or twenty-three or something, something in that. Twenty area. twenty-three, maybe. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, it's, it's really showing how. Um, it it does seem to like highlight a trend of of people just getting more and more divided everywhere in the world, and um, also like sort of giving up a bit on the the status quo. Like I feel like Macron is right wing, but sort of represents the status quo, and then the extreme right and the left candidate that have both got like a fair chunk of people's votes are like people going, no, nah, we want something different. Yeah, and, and the traditional left and right parties in France got bugger all votes. I mean, they, they've just disappeared mm-hmm. almost completely, yeah. uh, those old parties. Uh, but Macron's interesting because he is, as you say, he's, he's quite right-wing. He's, he's very much pro-business. He's, um, he's attacked the working class, essentially. Uh, but it, in this case, you know, he's, he's a better alternative than Le Pen. Yeah. <laughs> and the you know, reports are it's going to be pretty close. I think most people think Macron will scrape in. But um, Yeah, but, but it's gee, also but, one of those yeah. things like it just feels like we are continuing to have to vote between, uh, like vote for the lesser of two evils, yeah, yeah. just like the – the Liberal and Labor Party in Australia, except that the gap between those two evils is getting closer and closer until, mm. like, yeah, what are we going to do? Well, Albanese is... You're calling Albanese a bit evil, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I heard a commentator this morning uh, make the point that, uh, you know, uh, he has long press conferences but doesn't say anything, and if you're running on a policy of um, really having no policies... Um, it gets a bit difficult over all the days of the election. They're going to start asking you questions for which you haven't got any answers. But I mean, that was blown out of all proportion. I think that particular mistake, so so called mistake, but nonetheless, uh, you know, these, they, um, yeah, the choice we've got, and I'm sure David Spratt will talk about it, um, is uh, pretty ordinary indeed, isn't it? Just before we go to David, one other thing I did want to talk about was the government has has said 
it will resurrect those industrial relations laws that were knocked off during the last term, uh, which include all sorts of terrible attacks on workers' wages and conditions, including, you know, it, it includes, for instance, uh, workers being allowed, and they're saying this gives workers a choice, being allowed to work overtime without pay, without extra pay, without overtime pay. Um, those sort of things are included uh, on this. They also want to have eight-year terms for new resource developments and, and what they call um, greenfield developments, um, which means workers are locked into a particular award for eight years along those sites, and the bosses are screaming for that one because you, you, know, you, you can lock them in and exploit them for eight years. Uh, so there's all sorts of dangers happening there, I think, also in the industrial relations field because employers in this campaign are coming out collectively with all their sundry profits groups and saying that we need industrial relations reform. And for them, of course, it means smashing workers' wages and conditions even more. And they all end up by saying this will lead to to higher wages. <laughs> but the way, the road to higher wages seems to be to slash current wages and conditions um, mm, to get there. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's it. But that, that's, one of the, that's one of the things that's sort of lying there in this election that I think is going to, you know, if Labor doesn't come out and make very strong points about and I don't think it will. No. Then the employers and the and the certainly the current government are, are talking about trying to crush workers even more once the election's over. Mm, something to look forward to. Yeah, wonderful, isn't it? Speak to look forward to David Spratt. He might well, he'll cheer us up no end about the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go to a short break and then we'll we'll get him on. Are you ready to vote? The federal election is on soon. If you've recently turned 18 or have never enrolled before, you have to enrol to vote before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. If you've changed your name or address since the last time you voted, you have to change your details. To enrol, you need proof of ID like a driver's licence or passport or someone who is already on the electoral roll who can confirm who you are. Enrol or change your details on the internet at aec.gov.au or pick up an enrolment form at any Australian Electoral Commission AEC office and return it to the AEC before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. That was Kachiri Lady by Ruby Hunter. 
Right, yeah, Ruby Hunter was mentioned this morning, so I, that was on Radio National earlier, so you kind of mentioned, yeah. Um, David Spratt's on the line. David, of course, is, um, every time we get him on, we tell you he was the author of Code Red all those years ago, a climate change activist for many, many years. David, let's let, we always ask this question. When you wrote Code Red, which is, I don't know, 08 or something, wasn't it? Um, you warned then about the need to take urgent action on the climate. Um, has it happened? Well, I mean, isn't it ironic that it was actually published in 2008, we wrote a book called Climate Code Red, The Case for Emergency Action, and I remembered all sorts of people around the official climate movement pilloried us and said, emergency was exactly the wrong word because it wouldn't motivate people and we needed hope, and now, 14 years later, people are actually meaning that we're in an emergency. So we've got the problem, right? It's just that there's been no solutions that have really, uh, really had any effect. I mean, I was just looking at the um, emissions, the, 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 the global greenhouse gas emissions for last year, and we know they went down in 20, uh, 2020 because of the COVID lockdowns. But last year, they were back to a record level. I mean, I mean the world has not yet got to peak emissions. That's, that's the reality. And, of course, with those peak emissions, with particularly CO2, often its impact takes two or three decades to, to reflect in terms of what's happening on the planet, doesn't it? Well, yes. I mean, uh, there's more warming in store. I mean, I, I was struck a few months ago that the University of New South Wales Climate Extremes Group put a little briefing paper, and they said for the current temperature, which is one point you know, about 1.2, in the long run you could expect 5 to 9 metres of sea level rise and for the current level of greenhouse gases you could expect 10 to 25 metres of sea level rise. I mean, which are really astounding figures because you know the first 1 or 2 metres of sea level rise will, you know, take out coastal areas, certainly some of the most agriculturally rich uh, lands in, in the world are alluvial deltas, whether it's the, the, the Nile or the Ganges or the Barnabas Bridge or anything else. I mean, the first one or two metres of sea level rise, even as we've seen along some quite rich properties on the northern beaches of Sydney, is devastating. So, I mean, what's, what's um, coming down the line if, if we don't reverse it is, um, uh, you know, it's truly stupendous. Yeah, we, let's get it out of the way first day of the election. Um, this will be pretty quick, I think. Um, are there any prospects for improving climate or addressing climate change, particularly by either party, by the major parties? Uh, in this election? Kevin, I mean, I think it's actually amazing that this is both the climate election and not the climate election. I mean, if you if you think about it, I think the last six prime ministers in Australia have lost their jobs because of climate. I mean, John Howard in 2007 didn't work out a drought was on. The millennial drought had a really big effect. Kevin Rudd promised to make climate the greatest moral issue of our time. Howard lost. Uh, Kevin Rudd then backflipped and got knocked off by Julia Gillard. She wanted to do anything, then needed the Greens, the independence, and brought in a carbon trading scheme. Uh, Tony Abbott was opposed to that. I don't think that won in the election, but it was certainly a big issue. Abbott got knocked off by Turnbull because he was so hopeless on climate, and Turnbull got knocked off by Morrison because he couldn't get his energy policies through. So, in, in a way, climate has completely dominated Australian politics. And even this election, I mean, it will certainly be the, the big issue for the Greens, and we've seen this um, Climate 200 group set up by home, Simon Holmes to court to, um, 
to port and are called the teal candidates in some inner city liberal seats. And I mean, that is motivated by climate more than anything else. And I mean, they could cause some severe damage and, and, and knock off the Tim Wilsons and the David Sharmas as well. So in one way, climate is really the biggest story in Australian politics. On the other hand, the, neither of the two major parties want to talk about it this election. So that's, I mean, that's an incredible contradiction. And the Liberal Party don't want to talk about it because they're on the nose about it. And Labor don't want to talk about it because their policy's weak and they think they're going to get wedged in some coal mining seats. So, uh, you know, it's a huge irony that the climate is both the biggest issue and, and political determinant in this country and something that we'll barely hear about during the election, I suspect. Mm, yeah, when you listed off all of those Prime Ministers, it just, it sounded like it could be a mildly entertaining soap opera if it wasn't so depressing. <laughs> well, but, but, but it has one way or another. All of those changes have had a climate a climate story behind them because Australia's, you know, never come to grips with a decent policy and because the, the, essentially the fossil fuel industry has got a complete stranglehold over politics in this country. Well, in fact, Kevin Rudd, I mean, there were two big issues, I think, that, that won him such an overwhelming election victory back then in 07. It was, um, it was climate change and it was, um, it was work, um, work choices, yeah, yeah. Uh, which he said he'd rip up. Well, he ripped up, I think, one, maybe an inside page somewhere, but that was about <laughs> it. Um, and, and I think if he, if he genuinely addressed those issues, he might still be Prime Minister almost, wouldn't he? I mean, he, I think the fact that he backflipped on both those issues cost him dearly. Well, it did, and I mean, it's a bit of arcane history now, but at the end of 2009, when he'd been in power for two years, there was the Copenhagen Climate Conference that people had big hopes for in terms of people signing up to big emissions cuts, and it didn't happen. And Rudd had, had predicated you know, doing things in Australia based on what would happen in, in Copenhagen, which was a really bad call. And when Copenhagen failed, Rudd came back and said, well, I'm just not, it's not, the, it's a big moral issue, but I'm not going to do anything anymore. And, uh, uh, you know, that was his undoing because he'd made it, you know, uh, a, this great moral commitment and then done nothing about it. So it was, you know, it was an incredible own goal. Yeah, it does really say, oh, well, that just shows that I guess I'm immoral. <laughs> um, one question that I was going to ask you, a more um, sort of current policy that's going on is about this Professor Andrew McIntosh that recently was a whistleblower on the government's carbon credit system um, and what what you have to say about carbon offsetting and, um, you know, whether it's effective or not. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a really big story. Um, for people who didn't who didn't see the story, Andrew McIntosh is a professor, I think, of law, mainly at the Australian National University. And for seven years, he chaired a thing called the Emissions Reduction Assurance Committee. Mm-hmm. Now, to break to break that down, the Australian government um, didn't really want to do much about climate change, but it said it would pay people to reduce or offset emissions. So, you know, there's billions of dollars there to pay people to reduce emissions. And this was called the Emissions Reduction Fund. And so this was... Uh, Andrew McIntosh was basically in chair of the committee that was making sure that this was, was you know, working properly. And after seven years, he came out and he said, this carbon market... And so what we're talking about here is that people are paid money, for example, to grow trees, which obviously, you know, through photosynthesis, draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it in wood. 
mm-hmm. uh, to, to grow trees, to um, uh, not chop down things that they're going to chop down, which is very ironic because it doesn't actually reduce emissions at all. And he said, and so people could, for example, grow trees, they get a carbon credit for it, and they could sell that carbon credit to, for example, a fossil fuel company, and they'd say, well, we're offsetting these emissions because these trees are growing. And he said this market has just has degenerated into a rort, uh, which is what happens with carbon trading. And he said somewhere between 80, 70 to 80% of these carbon credits are this is polite, markedly low in integrity. Mm. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very polite way. And he, what he actually said was payments are being made to people to not chop down forests that were never going to be chopped down, to grow forests that are already there, and to grow forests in places that will never sustain permanent forests. So, for example, you can go to Outback New South Wales and say, say yes, we're going to grow these trees and these will draw down carbon. Then you get a sustained drought and the trees die and the scheme evaporates. And, and what's worse, and, and one of the reasons I came to this analysis was when I looked at satellite imagery where people were claiming to grow forests they hadn't or where they claimed to be growing forests, there were forests there already. So this is, you know, this is, this is a high-grade vault that he called out. Um, and that's... That, I guess, is really the problem when you try to turn climate change into... You turn carbon into a, a commodity to be traded and to make money out of. So, you know, the whole climate policy process is, OK, we've got this thing that's bad. How can we make money out of it? Mm, yeah. And, um, of course, the problem is that... Well, there's lots of problems, but, like... The especially bad thing is that then fossil fuel companies can buy these bogus credits and then potentially it's like giving them a license to emit even more carbon dioxide than they would have been allowed to otherwise. So it's even like the carbon offsetting scheme is like actually making emissions higher than they would have been. Yes, yes. I mean, I think it works. It's everything from a personal level to a global level. I mean, you think about... You know, uh, airlines saying, oh, you can fly, but we'll offset your emissions, uh, which are pretty dud schemes because they don't actually admit how big the emissions are. And then people go, oh, well, I can do this with a clear conscience. I can keep on being a first world high emitting person, but it's all all right because somebody else is offsetting it. And I mean, what all this denies is that we've actually got to stop using fossil fuels altogether. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the bottom line. I mean, every, every, every whether it's coal or oil or gas that goes up in the atmosphere is going to make the world hotter and more unlivable. And most of these schemes are, are just a scam. But that's, that's sort of the way that policy making is going. I mean, you know, last year we had the, the policy making conference in, in Glasgow and they all adopted this thing called net zero by 2050. And I guess the, the sleight of hand is that people hear zero and they think it's zero but in fact it's not and I last year had a bit of look at what are called these net zero scenarios um, including one put out by the central bankers and you think oh well by, by 2050 there'll be no fossil fuel emissions coming back that'll be all over but in fact in their main scenario and this is unbelievable 
Mm-hmm. In 2050, gas production will still be 50% of what it is today. And fossil fuels will still be one-third of all the primary energy energy used in the world. And, I mean, and then, of course, there's, there's all these schemes about offsets and bioenergy and carbon capture and storage, which as technologies don't exist. So, you know, the whole discussion about getting rid of emissions, I think, has become an excuse to make a lot more dough out of continuing to admit and then producing schemes that are supposed to offset that but don't. Yeah, the um, well, when 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 the Woodsides and the Sandosters of this world announce their aim is zero emissions by 2050, they actually admit that. They say they will still will still be emitting, but of course we will offset it. But as as we now know, the offsetting bit has it has the odd problem. Well, I mean, I mean, Kevin, one of the, the, the things is is that the offsets are based on technologies that don't actually exist at the moment. You know, they're, they're sort of, they're, they're technocratic dreaming. I mean, the, the, the biggest one is, is carbon capture and storage, yes. um, which the Australian government has spent, I mean, hundreds of millions, perhaps a billion dollars subsidising the idea that you can capture carbon dioxide out of, out of smokestacks or from industrial processes, uh, compress it. Uh, and pump it back into the into the various things that the, the very very the very holes in the ground that fossil fuels have come out of, and this has been a bit of a cargo cult. I mean, for a couple of decades, and Melbourne University's got a whole little research centre on carbon capture and storage, but basically none of these schemes, despite I mean, around the world, billions of dollars of subsidies, have actually produced a a viable process. No, well, the the Chevron one on Barrow Island and off Western Australia, that one, it um, it was sold on the basis that they would sequestrate the CO two and the gas, and um, they've had massive problems. and And at the time, in fact, we interviewed a um, a geologist um, uh, had a lovely Welsh accent. I can't think of her name. Llewellyn was her second name, uh, and she said, "Look, geology ge- geologically, it's it's a totally porous island." apart from the fact that it's pristine and it's ecologically currently important. So, you know, the damage there must be devastating to the local environment. That process um, was, a, as I understand, was the condition of their licence. It was, yeah. Uh, um, and now they said, oh, we actually just can't, we can't do it. We can't do it. So, I mean, in, in those conditions, the licence should be withdrawn, but that's not going to happen. Mm. I mean, I guess, I guess the other thing when people say, well, why is this stuff going on? I mean, a lot of those contracts for, for um, North of the Shelf were actually signed off by Julia Gillard when she was Prime Minister. So, I mean, the, 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 you know, the love for the possible fuel industry is spread, um, you know, a, across the, the large parties. Um, oh, and by the way, for people who haven't seen the news this morning, I mean, some things in politics are really logical. George Christensen was annou- announced he was going to get out of politics, but this morning he's announced he's standing for, for One Nation, so I guess some things do reach their logical yeah. end point. And he said he should have gone there years ago, which he's probably, he wasn't, he at least he got something, yeah. right? But, but you know, when people talk about why are these fossil fuel uh, industries booming, I mean, the Australian Institute's just done, done some research on fossil fuel subsidies from government to this industry. Um, 
And, I mean, most of those subsidies uh, are tax breaks, uh, about about sure, 80% of them are tax breaks, so you make money, you don't pay tax, accelerate depreciation, and then there's direct financing subsidies, here's the money to do with export incentives. Um, those subsidies in Australia in the last financial year were just over $10 billion, which, if you break it down, is $19,600 per minute, every minute, every day, of every every hour of every day for a year. So almost $20,000 a minute in, in fossil fuel subsidies from this government to the fossil fuel industry. And this is an industry that says it can't compete with renewables because renewables are being subsidised by government. Um, does that add up? I mean, here's, here's, here's the thing. I mean, I mean, the really good news story in Australia is, 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 is largely in the electricity generation sector where we've seen uh, old coal-fired power stations and some not so old basically either falling out of the market, having to close early or announcing they're closing earlier than they planned to. And the, the simple reason is that is that um, they can't compete with new renewables. Mm. I mean, every, everybody knows uh, that uh, in, in a market without subsidies, there would never be another gas or coal-fired power station built in Australia because solar, because solar and wind are cheaper. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. And we've seen Angus Taylor, you know, trying to subsidise new gas and the mob in Queensland like George wanting a new coal-fired power station. But, I mean, the technology and the economics of, of producing electricity has fundamentally changed. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, the, the other, of course, speaking of electricity, um, e-cars, they're, um, we're not going very fast on those, but are, are they a, a genuine way of at least making some improvements to the environment? Kevin, look, here's the issue. I mean, and, and, it, and it, I guess it comes to the big issue of sort of growth and everybody uh, wanting a certain standard of living. I mean, uh, those car batteries, I mean, the cars, particularly the batteries, require huge amounts of, of resources, particularly yep. precious metals. And there is simply not the available supply of, of, um, of those metals to make all the batteries for people uh, in, in in the world who who now or think they want to have one. I mean, I, I just think it's a in in a sense, yes. Uh, some some people in, in in Western countries and with higher standards of living can can buy uh, an electric car, but there is simply not the material resources. I mean, this is another classic limits to growth and overuse of the world's resources. Yeah. And on that, David, we, we talked today, we talked to uh, Paddy Moriarty from Monash about this a couple of weeks ago on this program, but uh, there's also around the world communities complaining about the environmental impacts of extracting those very resources for the battery anyway. Exactly, exactly, and that's the problem. And they're they're, uh, they're largely in the developing world, and, and the circumstances are are appalling. So, uh, what works small scale is not going to work is not going to work large scale. I mean, it is it is. Uh, I mean, it, it comes to, to to a larger problem. I mean, if you look at these these propositions uh, about what the world's going to look like in 2050, I mean, the the proposals are that the world. Well, the projections are that the world will need 50% more food 
in 2050 than we do now due to increased population and, and people's standards of living increase. Uh, yet we have these schemes, which we're talking about, um, uh, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, that will actually reduce the amount of land available for agriculture. So, you know, uh, in this technocratic dreaming, we're going to produce 50% more food with less land than we have now. And I think, I mean, the EVs and other electric vehicles are another version of that. Well, before our listeners decide to uh, commit suicide in the kitchen this morning, um, what what... What is what? What do you see as the solution to all this, or is there a solution to all this? Uh, look, of course, there's a solution. I mean, this is this is not a te- this is not an economic or, or, or a technological problem. I mean, we have most of the technologies available. Um, uh, uh, we don't have we don't have the political will to do it. I mean, we've got two parties in you know, the the two major parties contesting this election uh, who are lockstep. In the fossil fuel industry, I mean, more obviously in the case of the, the Liberal National Party uh, and the National and the National Party, one's called the Country Party, used to represent uh, farmers, and it's obviously switched allegiance from farmers to the mining industry. I mean, the relationship uh, that uh, Barnaby Joyce has has with some of the biggest miners in Australia is plain for to see. But on the Labor side, I mean, there are a lot of Labor ministers, I won't uh, name them all now, uh, who've left and gone off and consulted the gas industry and continue to have very close relations with the gas industry. Uh, so that's the problem. Uh, Kevin, I think the problem is is that people think we can get out of this uh, without without any pain. That we can do this, it can all be gradual, it can all be slow, uh, you know, we get there by 22 to 2100. The problem is that it has to be done much quicker uh, than policymakers want to accept, and that is is, is going to require um, basically uh, countries like Australia. I mean, we have the highest uh, emissions in the world, having to accept that we're going to have to uh, emit. Um, uh, none of that, and perhaps reduce our, our profligate consumption uh, in order for resources to be diverted to dealing with the issues. So it's, it's absolutely not a technological issue or an issue of economic capacity. Uh, we've talked about um, the fact that renewables are killing fossil fuels in in, um, in electricity production. I mean, great work's being done on, on reducing emissions for agriculture. So the, the solutions are, are there, but the political will isn't. Mm. The, the ind- industry comes out and the government and, and their, their mates come out and tell us that the, the solution must lie in, in the market. The market must sort out the solution to climate change. But, but can capitalism address this? I mean, it, 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 is, based, it is based on eternal growth and eternal yeah. growth's the problem, isn't it? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, people say, oh, look, there's all these renewables. Why aren't emissions being reduced? I mean, the fact at the moment is that the global economy is growing, but each year there is demand for more energy. Now, renewables are providing that, that because they're growing, are providing that additional energy required each year, but they're not cutting into the existing energy system. Uh, effectively. So the existing energy system is producing the same amount of energy with the same amount of fossil fuels and then renewables are, are basically providing energy for growth. Now if there was no growth, then those renewables were actually cutting into the fossil fuel emissions uh, much more quickly. Uh, so from that point of view, um, growth is, 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 is the um, uh, is, 
is really counterproductive. Um, I mean, apart from the fact that we have have resource limits. I mean, I think the really bigger issue which you referred to is the fact that if we leave it to the market, markets want stability, they want certainty, markets react slowly and they change slowly. And this is not a circumstance. I mean, um, this would be like a, a, you know, a bushfire rolling over, over the hill, see the smoke in the distance and say, well, I think we should put out some competitive contracts for the private sector to get some fire trucks ready. I mean, we don't do that because the market can't respond to a bushfire. It's where we have specialised services on standby, run by the state. And I think climate is pretty much the same way. Unless there's state leadership and state control, um, the market simply will not respond. It, mm. has, it, hasn't, it hasn't responded. I mean, we've had carbon prices for 20, 30 years. We've had schemes... We've had you know, policy-making conferences every year. Every, every year they have a new scheme. And emissions keep on going up. I mean, history history shows the market has not uh, been able to respond to this. Well, Abbott's scheme, which still exists, was to actually pay them to pollute, wasn't it? You give them lots of government money to keep polluting. Uh, well, I mean, there's been there's been all sorts of versions of that. I remember uh, back in the early days, Europeans had a thing called the emissions trading scheme, where you you know. You had to pay if you polluted, but they said, "Oh, look, there's a lot of industry uh, that's you know necessary, so we should give them credit. We should give them some, some pollution credit for what they're already doing." And they handed out so many of these free credits that the price dropped to zero. You know, I mean, this, this is what happens over and over again, uh, and it's the same thing that Andrew McIntosh uh, talks about. 78, 70 to 80% of the credit are for schemes that are actually not reducing emissions. And of course, you know, we, we would argue, oh, I would argue, and I'm sure you would too, David, that you know, for centuries now, decades, these big companies have made millions and billions, or billions in fact, and trillions probably over the time, um, out of polluting the planet. But now, any time they're asked to take some step not to pollute the planet, they say we need to be subsidised, we need help, or the public must pay for this. Um, why shouldn't they meet the costs of fixing up their own mess? Well, well I mean, here's the thing, we've already talked about it. Yes, they should, they should pay to fix up the mess, but at the moment they're actually being paid to make the mess. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, Not so when, good. <laughs> well, I, mean, when, but, I mean, when you think about this Australia Institute work mm. about fossil fuel subsidies being $20,000 per minute, every minute uh, for a year in Australia, I mean, that's, that's $20,000 a minute going to fossil fuel industry pockets saying, please pollute more. Please pollute more. I mean, uh, rather than them paying uh, paying the cost of, of stopping production and cleaning up, they're actually being paid to make the problem worse. I mean, this is this is unbelievable. Gee, if they didn't give those subsidies, they might even be able to increase the job seeker allowance or something. <laughs> yes, uh, things that, that a certain party promised not to do yesterday. Yes, I mean, very good. Um, I mean, I mean, ten ten billion dollars is, is is a lot of money. I mean, we talk about, you know, the need for dental schemes. For, for, for I mean, what was what was the Labor Party's aged care promise? Two and a half billion dollars a year. You could pay for that four times over. I mean, and 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 this is the problem that uh, you know, a new government might come in and say, oh, there's not much money to do things. 
But if you actually look at, at the sort of industry subsidies like this, there's actually a lot of money available. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, just before we go, I, I really liked your and market analogy of like responding to a bushfire, and it made me think of like the local effects that we will see in the future in Melbourne, especially when you mentioned um, at the start about sea level rise. Like, have people been working on what Melbourne will look like in 10, 50, 100 years? Um, yes, science are working on it, and policymakers don't know what, want to know um, um, what, they've, what they've found out. I mean, if you look at, at, at Dockland or that you know, huge new development um, just the other side of the, of the docks there, um, um, you know, where they're going to reclaim the whole area, and spend, I don't know, $50, $60 billion on it, put a new um, Melbourne University campus on it. If you, if you take reasonable assumptions about sea level rise, that area will be periodically flooded. Uh, I mean, like, you know, month in, month out, by the end of the century. And yet here's the state government signing off on a, a major planning uh, scheme for in this inner city part of Melbourne. And I'm told that when they signed, signed off on that, they did not take sea level rise assessment into account. Right. At so, all. I mean, yeah. this is a great planning issue. I mean, uh, you can tell me, what's, what's you know, that uh, Fisherman's Bend, that whole mm. development, uh, you know, which is the big planning urban, you know, we've done a great job here, has been, has gone ahead without any assessment of sea level rise. I mean, this is this is a, a planning scandal at a, at a state government level of, 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 of incredible incredible size. Yet another planning scandal, actually, this puts <laughs> them all over the place, but uh, yeah, so, it, it, I mean, it does seem to be haphazard, like they seem to approve some things here and some things there, and there, does, there seems to be no plan there, in fact, in many ways. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's the whole problem that we're seeing up in, in Lismore along the coast, where uh, these these sort of impacts have been known, but policymakers wanted, don't want to know about it. And, and the, the reality is, as sea levels increase and you get more severe flooding, there are places where people are living now which they will not be able to live in the future. And you need a policy of planned retreat uh, where the state provides a mechanism for people to be able to live somewhere else. That's the bottom line. And that's the only fair way to do it. Uh, and to say to people in this one other places, yes, you're living on properties that are going to flood so often, it's actually not viable to live there. We're going to find you an alternative place, an alternative uh, um, uh, accommodation, houses, land to, to build on. I mean, that's what has to be done. Planned retreat is the only sensible policy, but it's not on the agenda. Yeah. And of course, we're going to we're running out of time. But the, just to finish up, the intergovernment panel, intergovernmental panel again recommends you know getting rid of fossils immediately, uh, and yet, as you say, they, they that's increasing the subsidies to them. Yep, I mean when people say as they do when I talk, when when what's the deadline for getting rid of fossil fuels? Twenty thirty, twenty thirty five, twenty fifty. I keep on saying, well, actually, it was yesterday. Hmm. Yeah. 
Well, on that note, thank you for coming on the show, David. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks, David. Look, we'll talk to you again and um, and keep up the the good work. Yeah, and we'll we'll have the non-climate climate election. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, thanks, David. David Spratt there is um, a well-known environmentalist and and activist, and as we said, many years since he wrote that book, and yet warned then, and yet the warning's never been heeded, um, unfortunately, is it? Yes, very unfortunately. Housing next week. Housing next week. I won't be here, but Karina will oh, be well, taking well. on the my role. <laughs> You're abandoning housing, aren't you? Okay. <laughs> we better go. It's 9.59. Joe's going to get anxious. We better go. And, uh, see you next week. Yeah. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.